Hello, and welcome to Quest, a vineyard church where we experience life as friends with faith through encountering God, loving others, and making a difference in our community. If you're new, there will be information at the end of this podcast where you can plug into Quest in person or online. Now let's dive into this week's teaching. Welcome. Today, as we continue our series, The Questions of Jesus, we're going to jump into a question that I think has this unique power to completely change our lives. If we get what Jesus is asking us in this and interact with him in the way he's inviting us to interact with him on this question, it's going to remove blind spots. It's going to take uh, things that hold us back that we don't fully recognize and make them clear to us and help us move beyond them. We'll be able to not just think about knowing Jesus, but we will know him, we will encounter him, we'll learn what it's like to know his presence and, and live life with him in a real honest relationship. So... We're going to pick up today uh, where Jesus and his disciples have been uh, doing some just really grueling ministry, large crowds, uh, lots of constant pressure to minister. So Jesus is deciding to take his disciples away for a break, uh, to recuperate. And as always always the case with Jesus, he's got a little bit of mentoring in mind that he's going to do with them to help them grow. So they head off to this place, that was a town that was called Caesarea Philippi. It was actually a town that was given its name around the same time Jesus would have been old enough to get his learner's permit if they had cars back then, uh, about that time. So just a few years before this, it was named as a town, and it was known for this tremendous amount of idol worship, lots of different gods there. In fact, some people referred to it as the gates of hell. In Mark 8... Uh, Jesus begins by asking us a warm-up question, you know, kind of you know, get, us, get us a little bit warm, a little bit loose before we get into the real, real meat of the workout that he's going to give us today. And this question is this. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? Uh, this is a dangerous question, isn't it? Do you really want to know the answer to this about what people think about you? Wendy and I recently rewatched our one of our favorite romantic comedies, the Sabrina movie with Harrison Ford. Anybody else watch that? Anybody else like that? Yeah. Uh, Harrison Ford. So if you haven't, Harrison Ford plays this extremely wealthy, old money type of a person who's this heartless, Machiavellian type of manipulating, you know, businessman. And he's actually trying to sweet talk uh, Sabrina uh, and manipulate her because he sees her as a threat to a billion dollar deal he's trying to close. And so he, he, he's trying to make nice with her and he says, well, you know, over dinner, who, who do people say I am? And she hesitates and he says, no, really, who do people say I am? To which Sabrina replies, I think this is great, they say you're the world's only living heart donor. <laughs> Isn't that a, that's just burn, ouch, Right? It's a dangerous question to ask if you're the one asking it. Now, Jesus asks his disciples this, and they say, well, some of the people think you're kind of this uh, formerly dead, reincarnated, great religious person like John the Baptist or Elijah or some other great prophet. So let's think about that. What are the people doing in those answers that they say this is who Jesus is? What they're doing is they're putting Jesus in these familiar, pre-existing categories that they have, much like I think we do in life as well. I mean, throughout history, Jesus has been the political savior of many movements, some of them good, some of them very bad, where politicians have used his name to manipulate people to their own selfish evil end. We've seen that in history. Even today, most people in America at some level admire Jesus. Even if they don't believe in him or have faith in him, they still admire him. 
And our culture puts forward many different familiar categories that we're all influenced by as to who Jesus is and how he fits in our lives. I've adapted some of the categories uh, from a list by Kevin DeYoung. So there, there's the patriotic Jesus. He, he's wrapped in our flag. So we assume that, that you know, being one nation under God, that, that we're going to be blessed by God, at least if we're true Americans, right? That's what we say. And there's the Republican Jesus who is against tax increases and activist judges and for something akin to family values and owning firearms. And there's the Democrat Jesus who's against Wall Street and Walmart and for reducing carbon footprint and the taxing the rich and giving the money to the poor, right? There's the libertarian Jesus who wants equality for everybody, freedom to do and be whoever they want. So they want almost no taxes, small federal government, and they don't want anyone to tell them how they can live, especially not what drugs they can legally take and can't take, right? So then there's self-help Jesus who gives us proven steps and motivation to cope with all of life's problems, heals our past, makes us feel valuable, and promises a prosperous, easy life. And then there's hipster Jesus, who drinks fair trade coffee, loves spiritual conversations, drives a hybrid if, you drive, if he drives at all, and goes dumpster diving. And I probably have, there's somebody here who's our, our own very own version of a hipster Jesus, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Doesn't, I mean, come on, come on. He could do that, yeah, yeah. Don't you love Daniel? He's, such, he's so much fun. Yeah. yeah. I don't know if you remember, he wrote one song we sang this morning. He's got another one they're trying to get ready to debut on Sunday soon that's just amazing. I love, I love Daniel and our whole worship team. Then we have the open-minded Jesus who loves everyone all the time no matter what except for the people who aren't as open-minded as they are. Similar to kind of the friend and buddy Jesus. And then here's one I really love. Touchdown Jesus. He helps athletes run faster and jump higher than non-Christians and seemingly determines the outcome of the Super Bowls. Now, maybe you like touchdown Jesus better this way. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And then there's hippie Jesus who teaches everyone to give peace a chance. Imagine the world without religion and help us remember all you need is love, right? Then there's yuppie Jesus who encourages us to reach our full potential and reach for the stars and then buy our boat. And then there's spirituality Jesus, who hates religion, churches, pastors, priests, and doctrine. He just wants to find God within and listen to some ambiguously spiritual music and feel good about life. Then there's platitude Jesus, good for Christmas specials and greeting cards and bad sermons. He inspires people to believe in themselves and lift us up so we can walk on mountains. And then there's one of my favorites, Boyfriend Jesus. He wraps his arms around us as we sing about his intoxicating love in our secret place. Anybody remember that old song? Glad that one's gone. Yeah. There's social justice Jesus who leads you in protesting all poverty and injustice, motivates you to serve to change the planet, and leaves you constantly overwhelmed with the pain of the world. And lastly, there's Lone Ranger Jesus, who is all about first and foremost meeting your personal needs, your personal wants, your personal desires. And it doesn't require you to be actively part of a church because Lone Ranger Jesus says you can be a good Christian without ever being part of the body of Christ. See, we have so many versions of who Jesus is and what it means to be like him. 
we have to really seriously and critically think about how our cultural lenses affect how we understand who Jesus is. There may be aspects of some of the versions of Jesus that we even talked about that are actually, there's part of them that is right. And then they also distort or leave something else out as well, which may be why Jesus turns to his disciples and zeroes in and says, but what about you, he asks them. Who do you say I am? If you're here today, who do you say Jesus is? See, this question is critical. In the light of the multitude versions of, of our culture putting forward of who Jesus is, who do you say I am, Jesus asks. And Peter immediately responds, you're the Messiah. This interaction that we're reading is recorded in Mark, but Matthew also has his own version. And Matthew, like many eyewitnesses, there's something in that interaction that stood out to him that he quotes that, that didn't stand out to Mark and Mark left out. Matthew adds that Jesus turned to Peter and he said, Well done! You have answered correctly. And this is not from your own wisdom. God showed you that answer. And then it goes on further. He says, looking at Peter, he says, Upon this rock, upon you, Peter, I'm going to build my church. And then Jesus goes on to describe how great a spiritual leader Peter will be. And I mean, Peter's feeling like a million bucks. Who wouldn't be right in that moment? In both accounts... Jesus warned them not to tell anybody about him. And then back in Mark, Jesus immediately continues on telling the disciples in very, very plain language that he's going to go to Jerusalem, that he's going to be arrested, he's going to be rejected, killed, and on the third day, rise. So so get this. Jesus has just applauded Peter for answering rightly and telling him that he knows the right answer and that God gave him that right answer and God is going to greatly use Peter's life and all sorts of power and purpose to change the world. And then Jesus starts talking about dying. And what does Peter do? Anybody remember? He takes Jesus aside and he does something that I don't think anybody else I can find in the Gospels ever did with Jesus. Peter just gets done saying, Jesus, you're the Messiah. And then he rebukes him, telling him he's all wrong saying, surely you aren't going to die. That's not what the Messiah does. I mean, think about that. That's pretty, pretty bold. So here's the bigger question for the day of this text. What's going on in this passage? What is Jesus up to? What is he trying to teach us? I think Jesus is trying to teach primarily two things, and we're going to do something different today. I'm just going to give you both points straight up front, and then we're just going to spend the rest of the day just kind of exploring and illustrating and talking about them. See, first Jesus is exposing how easy it is for you and I to be blinded by our culture's views or our religious upbringing's views about who Jesus is. And second, Jesus is showing us how important it is for us to have an honest conversation about what we really think about Jesus. So many years ago, back in our very early years in, in, in Oregon, so quite a while ago, I remember coming home and finding Wendy more than frustrated, having thrown a book across the room. Now, she's not typically a thrower of books, so after I discovered that her emotions were not about me or the kids, I learned that she was frustrated by what, by, and irritated by what she was reading in the book. 
It was uncomfortable. It was a challenging kind of book, a book that asked you more questions than it did give you answers. And, and it directly actually went against some of the learned cultural and friendship norms that the church instilled in us growing up. It challenged us to see Jesus in a different way. And some of those challenges were good, some of them were bad. That's the reason I'm not telling you the name of the book today. It accentuated in us a season of our faith that was characterized by having lots of difficult questions, some questions that even felt dangerous to us and seemed dangerous to other people who were followers of Jesus. Faith is a journey. Now, some describe actually our faith journey similar to our physical and emotional development. They kind of say, you know, you have your child years, and then you have your teen years, and then you have your adult years. And just like with physical and emotional development, it's not one is better than the other. It's just there's a purpose, and they build on each other, and that's just the way life is. So the early stages, oftentimes in our Christian walk and following Jesus, we tend to be a little more black and white. And sometimes we can actually lend ourselves to being a little bit overly rigid. As you move towards the stage of your teen years, you're you're becoming more independent. You have more need to challenge and question and challenge your beliefs and make your faith your own. And people in this stage want to ask and need to ask a lot of questions such as why are some of the passages in the Bible seem why do they seem to disagree with each other or or sometimes you ask whether this key doctrine or belief is actually biblical or reasonable. Yet this questioning can be misunderstood by others who may think that Questions show that we're compromising our faith and that can feel dangerous, can actually feel really vulnerable. And when you're in this stage, you feel a little bit vulnerable in your faith. And, and sometimes you, some people actually do turn away from their faith during this time, which is why it's so important for us to recognize this and understand this stage so that we can actually encourage and make a safe place for people to ask the questions and sort through their thinking and their feelings and still be in relationship and not have that threatened at all. See, it's a process of owning our faith, and it's a really interesting journey. And the next journey, sometimes people refer to as the adult stage of faith. It's, it's where our faith becomes a little bit more deep and, and, and where someone, we have the sense of a stronger connection or more stability in our connection and our faith and, and where, we're, where we're allowing ourselves to not worry so much about the mysteries and, and the unresolved questions because we know we just have this stability and we know. You also, in that stage, a lot of times have a little bit deeper involvement in, in investing in others, and, and, and even while you're still trying to constantly think about growing and longing to grow. So, so back to Wendy and what, what, what she would describe in that time period as the angst and nausea phase of our faith uh, that lasted a, a year or more. We were reading this book, flipping back, I think it was flipping us back into the teen phase of questioning. It was a season that I think was very familiar to what Ecclesiastes says when it says there's a time to plant and a time to uproot. There's a time to tear down and a time to build. This was a, a season of uprooting and tearing down, a time when God was very okay with deconstructing many of our thoughts. Now, now we believed God was good, we believed He was true, but pretty much during that time, everything else was on the table and, and just being challenged. And all, although, again, I wouldn't recommend this book because of the places the author goes. It really helped us ask questions, and, and drove us back to the gospel stories to examine Jesus and his thoughts. There were many things, but, but one of them was, for both of us, we were told growing up that you didn't go certain places, you didn't hang out with certain people doing certain things, and, and yet when you actually honestly read Jesus, he actually went to those very places and did the things we were told not to do growing up. 
And it challenged even more deeply how we related to people. It challenged assumptions and blind spots that we thought were where we were being like Jesus, but we actually really weren't being like Jesus. See, this is what Jesus seems to be doing here with his followers in this text. I love how Jesus uses questions. Questions are critical to the development of our faith. They're, they're critical to the development of any deep relationship. They're just critical to the heart of any good conversation. So when Jesus turns to his disciples and zeroes in saying, but what about you? Who do you say I am? Jesus knows the questions help people think through things to where they can more fully understand what they believe. And Jesus wants us to engage that same kind of a conversation consistently with him. What about you? Who do you say I am? Who do you say I am in this circumstance of your life? Who am I to you right now? See, this question is actually, I think, concealed below the surface of every single question we've dealt with so far in this series. Our very first question, what do you want me to do for you, actually leads us to, do you believe I'm trustworthy with a heart for, for your deepest desires and wanting to bless you? Uh, the question, has no one condemned you that we dealt with, lends itself to, do you believe I will condemn you? Who do you think I am to you when you do wrong, when you sin? Uh, why do you worry leads us to the, do you believe I'm trustworthy to care for your needs, to provide for you, to meet those needs? Does this offend you? He basically says, am I offensive to you? And, and how do you want to deal with that in relationship with me? Ultimately, they all lead back to this question, who do you say I am? Not because Jesus, Jesus is asking this, not because he's needy, not because he needs affirmation, not because he, he needs to figure out who he is. He, he perfectly well knows who he is. No, Jesus' question is persistent with us because who we say Jesus is is the most important question of any question in all of our lives. Everything depends on it. How we deal with stress, relationships, disappointment, heartache, success, deals with our answer to this question. Everything depends on it. So from the text, we see Peter raising his hand. Now, Peter never raised his hand for anything, right? He was the kid who never raised his hand. He just always blurted out. He says, Jesus, you are the Messiah. Now, that word Messiah today is kind of one of those white noise words that often means little to us. But for Peter and the people listening that day, it was a loaded word. Peter is essentially saying, Jesus, you are the center point of all of history. Everything in history turns on you. The word Messiah meant anointed one. It meant the one who is anointed with the presence and power of God. The one appointed by God, not just to be king, but to be king of all kings. So Peter is saying, Jesus, you are the king in waiting. That one upon whom all of history hinges. That one destined to be the ruler over all the nations, all the universe, king of kings, lord of lords, ruler of all humanity. That one that David and all the prophets prophesied under the power of the Holy Spirit saying that you would one day come and you would set things right and you would be the king of all kings. So as we noted though, Jesus highly affirms Peter as being right in saying this, right? And he immediately then tells them all about how he's going to suffer and die. And, and then Peter does this presumptuous act of rebuking Jesus. Why? Why does Peter do that? 
It's not because Peter is arrogant, though, I mean, we know from the character that we see in the Bible that there were times when he probably was brash and maybe arrogant. But, but no, that's not Peter in this instance. Peter has just been told in no uncertain terms that he is right, that Jesus is the Messiah. And then Jesus doesn't waste a breath. After this rebuke, he turns around and looks at all the disciples in the eye and he immediately rebukes Peter in front of everyone in no uncertain terms saying to Peter, Get behind me, Satan! Just what you want to hear from God to you, right? You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Now, this is like the most gracious, PC, effective communication skills approach to confronting someone I've ever heard of, right? Correct the person you just named as leader in front of the group of people and call them Satan. No, we know that's not. But I mean, Jesus is a master of communication. There's a masterfulness to his communication here, but Jesus is also a master at drawing us out with questions. And thus the series we're doing. So, so what's happening here? What's happening here is that Peter's cultural idea of what the Messiah is isn't fully right. And because it isn't fully right, Jesus, it's causing him to potentially lead others astray, the other disciples and followers of Jesus astray. See, Peter's idea of the Messiah is still the king-in-waiting, the, the meaning, the revolution, the establishing, the world, a one-world government, power, influence. He sees the massive crowds following Jesus. Just a couple days before, there was a crowd of at least 15,000 that they were ministering to, and he goes, this justifies that, yes, God, you were up to doing exactly what I think you're going to do. Now, in hindsight, we know that's not who Jesus is, right? We, we, he's the king who's going to pay the price that all of us deserved in death to create a revolution of the soul and spirit that frees us to become all God created us to be, both in this life and in the life to come perfectly in eternity. See, Jesus is going to rule over all people, not through an earthly throne, but through a personal relationship by His Spirit with every single one of us that we who repent of their sins, our sins and admit he is, we need Him to save us and we choose to follow Him. We all have cultural blind spots that even if partially right about Jesus, still keep us veering off course, bumping into walls, stumbling over obstacles that we don't see. So Jesus used this question, Who do you say I am? to enter a dialogue, and he wants to enter a dialogue with you and I as well to expose our blind spots. See, if Jesus' disciples hadn't been honest in that moment with what they had thought and talked about it openly, the blind spot would have remained. Uh, That's what this question is intended to do in all of us, to help us be real. Not the Sunday school right answer, but the real answer that we really feel and think of who he is. Uh, there was a guy named Bob going through a really difficult time. He was facing cancer. His business wasn't going well. A partner was suing him for control of the business, accusing him of mismanagement and misdealings that, that simply weren't true. So sitting down with Bob and asking him questions like, who do you say God is? Who is God to you as you're going through this right now? He would say things like, well, God must want my partner to sue me. He's got a purpose in everything he does, right? He must want me to have this cancer. God has a reason for all of this. See, Bob is actually using a common cultural view of God that I I like to refer to as, and a lot of people refer to as the puppet master. I hear it in people's language all the time, especially when facing difficult times. And it's actually a misunderstanding, a partial understanding 
that's not quite right of the biblical idea of God's sovereignty or God being all-powerful. See, God is first and foremost love. And love can only exist where there's free will to choose. So God's sovereignty doesn't mean God pulls all the strings and everything that happens is because of him, right? Sovereignty means that in the face of free will, God can still orchestrate the overall trend of history leading us to Jesus coming back and everything being set right in the end. And it does mean that God can, in a number of circumstances, orchestrate even nations and rising and falling and leaders rising and falling and other specifics of life. But it doesn't mean that every leader who rises and every leader who falls is a string being pulled by God. Or maybe this is an example that might take it in a little different direction for you from that and make it understandable as, as well. Let's say your child or your nephew or niece is going through a really difficult time, facing obstacles, whatever it is, relationships aren't going well, things aren't going well like you wish they were, like they wish they were. It's just a really hard time. If you ask yourself, not your child in this moment, but ask yourself, who are you, Jesus, to me? And maybe you're going to respond, well, Jesus, you're my comforter. You're my friend. You're my buddy who wants to be close to me. All of that is true. Jesus does call us his friend. The spirit of Jesus is referred to as comforter. All of that is true. So if that is true, then as a parent or an uncle or not, you're going to do everything you can to bring comfort and to ease the situation for your child, aren't you? But let me ask you a question. What if Jesus is wanting to be king to them in that situation? And he's using a difficult situation to help them find the perseverance and the internal habits to turn to God even when it's difficult, to face difficulty head on and battle through the difficult things of life. See, bringing hands-on comfort too soon to that situation might actually undermine who God is wanting to be to them in that situation. Yes, God wants to bring comfort and he wants to be a friend, but God is also our master and our king who wants to teach us how to be led into battle and conquer the difficult things of life in battle and defeat those difficult things. See, unless we enter a dialogue with God in each and every situation with Jesus answering the question, who are you to me in this moment? Jesus, who do you want to be this moment? And we're honest with that. We may actually pick one aspect of who Jesus is that we're more comfortable with. And it might even be right, at least partially right, just like Peter's answer was partially right. And yet not what God is doing in that situation. And therefore, we end up missing the full power and beauty of who God is and risk missing the transformation he wants to bring to our lives or somebody else's life. Conversation is so important. Answering this question, who do you say I am? Who do you want to be to me right now? Who are you to me right now is so important in both knowing God and staying in line with God in terms of what he wants to do in you, in others, and in the world. 
See, in this interaction with Jesus and Peter, we see actually something illustrated that Paul writes about in one of the more profound statements I think Paul makes. It's actually a verse I memorized as a kid and and meditated on for years. It's found in 1 Corinthians 8. And before we get there, Paul in this context in in Corinthians 8 is actually addressing another situation in this instance. Uh, The people in the Corinthian church are wrestling with this question, who is Jesus to me in this situation? And they find themselves caught in knowing. They know what they know, but Paul's actually going to point out to them that what they know are actually half-truths, and those half-truths are causing conflict in their relationships. They're wrestling with this issue of what does God's holiness dictate in our actions in relation to the culture we live in. Paul is addressing what they know. While Paul is addressing, you know, the, the specifics, if you actually read it, he's, he's talking about eating food that was sacrificed to idols and whether that's okay and what does that mean about my relationship to God? Am I, am I disobeying God? Am I, am I becoming an idol worshiper? But the particular issue doesn't really matter that much. The bigger thing Paul is addressing in this context is what they know of who God is and how that knowledge works in their life. So just like Jesus is addressing what Peter knew when he says Jesus is the Messiah, Paul points out, he says, knowledge is both a good thing and a dangerous thing if we don't treat it right. Paul says it this way. He says, we all possess knowledge. We all do. We all have these ideas of who God is and what's right and wrong and where life should go. But knowledge puffs up while love builds up. See, knowledge divorced from compassionate, loving relationships puffs up and creates divides. The goal that Jesus is inviting us to in this question is that we would know the other person, whether it's him or someone else in this situation, and love the other person. That we would connect with the pain, the hopes, the dreams, the thoughts of the other person. So so let's go directly back to Jesus and, and, and Peter's example for a moment. Peter is so brash and forward because he knows what the truth is. He knows that his declaration of Jesus is true. Jesus told him so. But for Peter, it's just a construct. It's just an idea of what he's always been told the Messiah will be. This great political, religious deliverer to make Israel a great again. Peter, though, is not connected to Jesus' heart yet in this situation. And Jesus is asking the question in a way that he wants to both help us seek, he wants to confront what Jesus knows Peter and his disciples don't really know yet fully, but he's actually also inviting them to personally come into the pain of his journey and his mission and where God is leading them. He's inviting them, unlike the crowds who have all sorts of opinions, to really come and know relationship and really know the heartbeat of God and Jesus in this situation. So while Peter knows, he doesn't really know. He doesn't know what Jesus' heart beats for and what Jesus' mission is. He doesn't love Jesus enough to know deeply enough. He doesn't love the people Jesus has come to serve deeply enough. He doesn't recognize that while Jesus true it is the messiah that the heartbeat love the messiah has is not just to save people politically but to set them free individually from sin and condemnation and death he wants to love and deeply impact people in a much more personal transforming way so peter's knowledge puffs him up peter's proud i mean who wouldn't be 
He's a follower of Jesus. One of the closest followers of Jesus. Just declared the leader of the followers of Jesus. He's looking forward to one day being this great general, this great advisor to Jesus, this great personal aid to Jesus, the soon emperor of the world. People will know Peter's name and admire him when all this happens. And the success and the evidence of the crowds in Peter's view, it's all the beginning of that greatness beginning to happen. He feels really good about himself. All for the wrong reasons even though he's got the right answer. See, knowledge devoid of love and compassion for the people and the mission of God just makes us proud. Jesus' question, who do you say I am, calls us to something deeper than knowledge. It calls us to something deeper than the opinions of people around us who don't really know Jesus. It leaves us with questions. Do you, do you want your Christianity to foster pride and confidence in that way? Do you want to know what's right and wrong or... Do you want a relationship? See, the love to which Jesus is calling us is voluntary. It's by choice. And because it's by choice, Jesus asks us the question, who do you say I am? It's not like a a test question that you simply get right to pass the test and you're just going to put... It's an invitation to be honest, even if you don't have the right answer in terms of what you feel and think to allow a conversation with God to expose what we think and to invite us to what we really need in order to love and know. Knowing the right answer is good. I mean, otherwise Jesus wouldn't have applauded Peter, would he? And so strongly affirmed him. But knowing the right answer is only the starting point of discovering love and relationship. See, I think we often try to describe Jesus as like we describe an object, like there's this really cool red car I saw with a hardtop convertible and 17-inch low-profile tires in it. I just dreamed of being able to take 25-mile-an-hour corners at 50 miles an hour, no problem. It's so fun until the police are on the other side of the corner, but that's, you know, that's another issue. In Mark 15, we see this character, the centurion, throughout the entire chapter, even though he's not explicitly named till the end of the chapter. It's the story of Jesus' crucifixion. Now, a centurion was a commander over 100 battle-hardened Roman soldiers, and in all likelihood, the centurion here was probably the commander of the entire garrison in Jerusalem that day. The whole day, this particular centurion has been in charge of, at the center of, the arrest and the beating and the crucifixion of Jesus. And he sees Jesus as some sort of Jewish cult leader. Having been in Jerusalem, most likely for a time, even if he hadn't been there, he would have been briefed when he came. He had heard the stories of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. It was his job to know. He both commanded the garrison. He was also in touch with all the intelligence, the secret spy stuff that they would do. He probably heard the ruckus even about the Jews pulling this adulterous woman because it was his job to know when any mob was starting to form any problem was going on in the community. He knew this adulterous woman we looked at a couple weeks ago pulled before Jesus, and he probably had heard how the mob was dispersed by the uncanny, wise response of Jesus. And he probably thought, that was pretty cool. That's a pretty amazing way to deal with that. He'd heard of Jesus healing people, of, of helping blind people see and, and, and people hearing who were deaf and lame people walking. And yet, in his worldview... Even if Jesus were some sort of God or prophet, he was just one among many. And the centurion knew he actually served the true Son of God, which is what they referred to Caesar as a lot of times in that day. 
and, and he knew that Rome's power was obviously supreme, greater than any other gods of any other people's power, because they had conquered everybody. So certainly he didn't have anything to worry about. He was, you know, he was serving the right one. The centurion knew who Jesus was. But after watching Jesus and the way he took the beating and watching Jesus before Pilate because the centurion would have surely been standing right there hearing everything that was going on. After watching him talk with the prisoners hung next to him on the, while they were all on the cross. After watching Jesus forgive all those who accused him and put him on the cross including him, the one who oversaw his crucifixion. And then Jesus died and an earthquake ensued. The centurion's knowledge moved from knowledge to love. And at the end of the chapter in Mark 15, we see and it says, And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, Surely this man was the Son of God. You've got to realize the only person he was supposed to call the Son of God was Caesar. Him saying this being heard so other people could record it, that was bold and sincere. And it wasn't the knowledge of Jesus that changed this man's heart. He knew all about him. It was Jesus' love. See, the only way we get to a love is to have a relationship and a conversation. Talking with Jesus, answering this question consistently, who do you say I am? Jesus is asking us all the time, who do you say I am? And we can even ask Jesus the same question back. Who do you want to be to me in the situation where I'm struggling with my kids? Who do you want to be in the situation where I'm struggling with my work? Who do you want to be when I'm struggling with this temptation I can never overcome on my own? Jesus, who do you want to be? This question of who Jesus is to us is the most important question we can ask. And it's the question Jesus asks us to be honest about. To not give the right answer, but give the honest answer. Because love and relationship are built on honesty, not on checking the right boxes to pass the test. See, Paul, right after he says, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up, he goes on and says, those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know. But whoever loves God is known by God. And they know God. As we take communion, this is a living interaction between us and our living God. And I want to encourage you today to let's make it personal. Let Jesus ask you, who do you say I am? And, 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 and respond to that question today even as you're taking communion. Remind yourself that this bread represents Jesus' body. And, and who is this bread who was broken for my sins? And whose blood was this that was poured out for my sins? And maybe as you're taking it, you may just want to whisper to Jesus saying, this is, this is who I know you to be. Or honestly, this is who I feel like you are, but this is what I want you to be as you come and take communion. Would you stand with me as we pray? Lord, thank you that you as the God of the universe who created everything are just so patient and loving and kind to to want to ask us questions and let us be honest with you, even when we doubt you, even when we don't have the right answer, even when we don't know what the answer should be, you still... You still want us to dialogue with you. Lord, that just, that kind of, 
that kind of patience and love just blows my mind. Because God, if I were you and that powerful, I would just want to tell everybody what to think. But, but you're so patient and kind. You love us right where we're at. So I pray that even now as we take communion, even as we go through this week, that you would be with each and every one of us. And in whatever things we're facing, that, that you would come to us and help us have that dialogue about who you are to us right now. And you talk to us about who you want to be. And that we would know you and your love and your presence and your power and your patience and your mercy and your grace and your peace with us now because we're willing to have that conversation. So Lord, even as we turn to worship now again and and we worship you through the receiving of the elements and and, and we pray our prayers and we sing our songs, Lord, would your spirit come right now and, and would you just rest on each one of us in the way we need it. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon audio. If you're loving Quest Podcast, let us know on Facebook or Twitter by using the hashtag GoToQuest. For more information on Quest, who we are, and what God is doing here, or if you would like to help support Quest financially, please visit us at GoToQuest.org. That's G-O-T-O-Quest.org. Thanks for listening.